morning. My name is Adam Venable, if we've never met, and I am your missionary over on the campus of UAB. It's great to be with you this morning, and let me say if you're new or visiting uh, to Red Mountain Church, we hope you feel especially welcome this morning, and if there's anything that we can do for you, we'd love to help you in any way that we could. This is a story that I've used before, but I'm going to try it again. Every December in RUF, they send the campus ministers to Denver, Colorado for a week of training. And there was one year when I went camping before training in December in Colorado in Rocky Mountain National Park. And if you have the right equipment, this kind of thing uh, might excite you. And so I went out there. I've got all the right stuff to do this safely. Um, and, you know, I hike out. And I get to the campsite. It's very beautiful. And finally the sun sets. And it was overcast. And so it was pitch black dark. And there was about a foot of snow on the ground. And so when I finally ate dinner and got in my tent, it's 10 degrees outside. And so there's no birds chirping. There's no... uh, I'm, I'm not in danger of any animals getting to any food I might have left out. No animals around, there's no sound, and it's pitch dark. And all my courage and excitement about going out there, it was gone. And I was just terrified. And I felt completely alone. And I thought, this was a terrible idea. Um, Another example. Uh, There was a survey that Cigna Health put out in 2018. And it especially addressed loneliness Uh, What does it feel like to be alone? What's the percentage of people who feel alone? And it especially highlighted American men. And it said that 40% of American men feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they're generally isolated and alone. Um, Same survey said 20% of American men rarely or if ever feel close to anyone. They feel alone. And the passage that we're looking at this morning from Matthew chapter 3 takes place in the wilderness, in the desert. It's a place where you feel alone when you are there. And I think especially during the holidays, it can be a time where despite all the, the commercials that make everything look like it's great, we can feel alone and afraid. And if that's you this morning, this passage is especially for you. And so look with me. We're in Matthew chapter 3, and this is God's word. And it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying, In the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord, make straight his paths. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be centered on you, Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in your name. Amen. My brother and I had a funny tradition when we were little. We would get each other very silly gifts for Christmas. And you know, we would do things like look around the house uh, for the worst, the stinkiest sock we could find. And I would wrap it up and give it to my brother. That would be his present. And uh, my brother would find like an old shoe in the closet and wrap it up. And he'd give that to me for Christmas. And an unusual Christmas gift. And I think the passage that we're looking at this morning, it's in danger of being treated uh, as sort of an unusual Christmas gift, right? We tend to think more about Mary and the manger and the wise men and things like that, the baby Jesus during Christmas time. And this passage is full of fire and judgment and John the Baptist and he's eating locusts. And it's a, it's a strange passage to think about during Christmas time for some of us who are not used to that. But I want you to think of this passage more like an unusual Christmas present. It's like this. You've been given a key, a house key, and you've been told that this house key is to a forgotten home that your family owns out in the country somewhere. And you've been given this key, and and, and you've got to go unlock it and find it. That's That's more what this passage is about. Unlocking something that we might think is unusual, but that can be very powerful in our life. And so I want to look at just two questions about this passage. Uh, What is God commanding us to do, this gift that we've been given here, this unusual Christmas gift? What's God commanding us to do, and then how can Jesus help us? What's God commanding us to do, how can Jesus help us? And the thing that he is commanding us to do, very simply, is what John the Baptist says. He says to go do what? To repent. Um, God is asking us to repent. And repentance is, is two things. And the first thing is that it's seeing another shore. Repentance is seeing another shore. And you see this in John's name. He's called the Baptist. 
and uh, it means the dipper, basically. He, uh, we, we might call him John the Dipper, or uh, John the Sprinkler, John the Washer. That, that's what baptism is. It's all those things. It's washing and sprinkling, and sometimes it was pouring water on, and sometimes it was submerging the thing in the Old Testament. They baptized utensils, and it even says sometimes they baptized couches. You can't submerge a couch, right? So they would have had to pour or sprinkled water over it. But baptism pointed to their relationship with God. Baptism was a pointer to the Jews that this world is not their home. That there is a God, a living God, And this God wants to cleanse them and heal them. And that's what the water of baptism signified. John comes, preparing the way of the Lord with baptism. Telling them, we were not made for this world. We're made for someone outside of this world. A relationship with the living God. Repentance is seeing another shore. A relationship with God. And you see it in even uh, John's diet. What does John eat? And uh, his outfits. John has a funny outfit that he wears. Um, he's wearing camel's hair, which, if you were Jewish, would have immediately reminded you of another prophet from the Old Testament named who? Who else ran around in the Old Testament wearing a strange outfit? Elijah. That's what Elijah the prophet did. And Elijah was another one of God's messengers who was telling the people, you were not made for this world. This world is not your home You're made for another shore. The prophets were those who went around Israel saying, essentially, wake up. Hey, hey, if I don't have your attention yet, wake up. In case you're distracted by this world, by buying stuff and trying to feel good and uh, going on vacation, you were made for another shore. And John is eating locusts and honey, which was just one more way to tell the people There's something different going on here. He's trying to interrupt their normal life. And you see it in verse 3, especially where this is not John the Baptist speaking. Sometimes in the book of Matthew, he will insert a comment into the story, which is not something Jesus or one of the characters are saying, but it's a comment Matthew is making about the story. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says in verse 3, This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Or make his paths straight. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, had looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 40, that's where this quote is from. Isaiah saw the glory of God. He saw a day when the power... The infinite and the eternal and the unchangeable one, Yahweh, would break forth and come into the world. Isaiah saw the glory of God coming, and he predicts one who would come to prepare the way of the glory of God into the city of God. That's why he says, make straight his paths. God is coming into the city, and the road that God needs to ride on... It's all messed up. It's like I-20. It's under construction. This road into the city that God wants to ride into the city and redeem his people. The road is all uh, messed up. And Isaiah sees one who's going to come to declare to the people, make the road ready. Make straight the paths. And the way that you can make that road ready is to repent. 
the road that leads into the city of God is paid with the asphalt uh, of repentance. That's the image here. Repentance is seeing another shore, that we were not made for this life. That's, that's, that's the first fundamental thing. Someone said it like this, and this really stuck with me, that this life is like a boat. We're in a boat, and the boat's too small. That's why this life uh, is disappointing. That's why all, all the Christmas gifts that you got, you're already disappointed. You wanted that, or you wanted a bigger one, or a better one, or... Uh, this, this gift that you got made you think of another gift that you want. This life is like a boat, but it's too small and it's leaking. We weren't made for it. It's supposed to be taking us to another shore. But we want to stay in the boat, even though it's leaking uh, and it's too small. But what God is saying is that this life is meant to point us to another shore, to a relationship with God. Repentance is seeing another shore. But... Repentance is also, it's turning to God. Repentance is turning to God. And where do you see this? Well, the the word repent is used uh, three times here. Verse 2, he says repent. Verse 8 refers to repentance. Verse 11 refers to repentance. And part of repentance, you see in the passage, is confessing their sins. Um, One of the old Christian writers talks about how Tears of confession are delicious, which is just a great image. Tears of confession are delicious. And they're delicious because they're part of us turning from our sin, turning from a life lived away from God, turning towards God. And when that happens, we experience renewal and cleansing. That's why it says they're being cleansed of their sins. And then it talks about how um, part of this is bearing fruit. He tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you have got to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is turning from sin towards God, and then it's bearing fruit. It's like farming. Repentance is like going into a field and sowing seed, or it's like planting a peach tree in your backyard and doing the hard work of cultivating fruit on that tree. What's the fruit that we're supposed to bear in repentance? Um, Think about Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, which is just after this passage that we're looking at. And Matthew talks about how it's blessed to be a poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Later on, the Bible says that fruit looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. That's what it looks like to bear fruit in repentance. And there's a challenge, though. Repentance is challenging, And the Sadducees and the Pharisees embody that. They embody why repentance is challenging. When Jesus, it says, um, uh, excuse me, when John the Baptist, when he sees many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he calls them a brood of vipers. It's a strange uh, insult. You know, when you're on the playground, that's not what you think about insulting your buddy with, brood of vipers. Many writers around this time um, believe that uh, certain types of snakes were born by eating their way out of their mothers. And so to call the Pharisees and the Sadducees this, sort of one of the, you know, the ultimate insult that you hated your own mother because you had eaten your way out of her, nor, nor just to be born. 
But it could also be a reference to Egypt, because Egypt in the Old Testament is sometimes called a brood of vipers. The last thing a Jew wanted to be called was a foreigner, an Egyptian. No, 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 no. I'm not one of those unclean sinner foreigner Egyptians. I'm Jewish. John the Baptist is saying, no, you're just, you're just like them, just like the Egyptians. He, uh, he calls them a brood of vipers. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says this, do not presume to say we have Abraham as our father. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What does he mean by that? Well, the Jews prided themselves on being sons of Abraham. It was a part of being in the community. And what John the Baptist is saying is that being in the community is not enough. Community is not enough. Neither is the outward ceremony. The Sadducees and the Pharisees might have been coming because they wanted to be baptized. But John the Baptist knows that all they want is the outward ceremony. They don't want the reality behind the ceremony. Side note, in Christian baptism, we make a distinction. The Bible makes a distinction between the water itself, the sign... And the reality of actually being cleansed of your sins. And you can have the sign, but not the reality. Right? They're not the same thing. They're distinct things. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they they might want the sign of baptism. But they don't want the reality behind it. They like being a part of the community. And they consider that the fact that they're a part of the community means that they're safe. And John the Baptist says... The righteousness that you have, it, it's, it's worthless. It's, God can take a rock and raise up a child from Abraham that has the real thing because you don't. You just want the outward sign. The thing that John the Baptist is emphasizing is that we have to have the reality. Repentance is turning from sin to God, a connection to the living God. There was a really good article I came across in the New York Times Magazine. It was on addiction. And this article on addiction, he's pointing out um, what has really helped people in addiction, in their experience. People who really study this, what really helps people in addiction. And this is what it says. These guys who are addicted have almost universally what I would call an intimacy disorder. Uh, One of the founders of the Addiction Recovery Program says, they don't really know how to build and maintain intimate relationships. The solution, they say, to addiction is connection. The solution to addiction is connection. This is a very biblical theme and essential to repentance. That if you turn from the things that you're ashamed of in your life to a new plan about how you're going to make yourself better. I got a new, I got a new Bible reading plan. I've, I've got a new uh, accountability partner. I've, I've got, uh, I don't know, whatever your plan is. <laughs> if that's all you've done, you haven't repented. Repentance is turning from your sin from the things that you've made greater than God in your life. Not to doing better, but to God, to a relationship with God, to a deep connection with God. Connection with God is essential to repentance. And then it's bearing fruit out of that. 
Uh, do we really need repentance? Really? And I want you to think about this. What do you meditate on? What do you meditate on at night? Um, the Bible says that we should meditate on God's law. That we should delight in the law of God. We should delight in the word of God. What do you delight in? I think we meditate on the conflict we have with that person in our family. I think we meditate on that conflict we have at work. And uh, I'm not saying this because I think I'm, I'm better than anybody. Like, I'm guilty too. We meditate on um, that person that we would rather be with than our spouse. We meditate on um, the things that, makes us, that, that make us anxious. We meditate on, I just want more money in the bank account at the end of the year. And what John would say is that you've got to turn from that. You have got to turn from that towards God. And um, one of the old Christian writers also says this about repentance, that it's the wine of angels. Isn't that great? Repentance is the wine of angels. Why do they call it that? The wine of angels. It's because the Bible says that every time someone repents, the angels in heaven, they rejoice. That there is great rejoicing over repentance. And that is what God is commanding us to do. How can Jesus help us? Um, We've looked at what God is commanding us to do. How can Jesus help us? Um, the Bible is not just do, do better, um, be better. And the Bible is not just, look, you really need to turn from God. Jesus came to help us to do these things. And unless we can answer that question, how can Jesus help us? We haven't really heard what the Bible is saying here. And he can help us because he wants to give us the kingdom of heaven. He wants to give us the kingdom of heaven. This is what John the Baptist says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's two things. First, it's a warning. The kingdom of heaven is a warning. And you see this first in verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Israel pictured itself like a great tree. The community of Israel loved the image that the people of God, the community of God, was this beautiful, fruitful tree. And John's warning is that Jesus has come, and a part of the work of Jesus is that he is going to take the parts of the tree that are not bearing fruit, and he's going to cut them off and throw them into the fire. It's a reference to the judgment of Jesus. You see it in verse 11. John the Baptist says this. He's talking about Jesus. He says, I baptize you, John the Baptist, with water. He is coming after me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The fire there is at least, maybe more, but it's at least a reference to the judgment of God. For 2,000 years, Christians have believed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who sat down at the right hand of God the Father, who will come again to 
judge the living and the dead. Jesus wants to warn us. John the Baptist has given us a warning. And the warning is about living life for yourself. That if you live life for yourself, it doesn't end well. If you live life for your pleasure and so that you can have more, so that you can get what you want and be in control, if you live your life that way, things spiral out of control more and more and more, and it doesn't end well. The judgment of God is a picture of that. Finally, says, uh, he says this about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Farmers in Jesus' time would gather in the wheat, and they would separate the wheat and the chaff, and they would throw it up into the air, and the chaff they would burn. And here uh, it says about Jesus this, that, that the judgment, uh, which it looks like fire, is going to be unquenchable, which means it won't be gone in an instant, but the fire will last forever. And I realize that this the image of fire and judgment is a hard pill to swallow. And first I would say this, that the fire here is not literal fire. Why do we know that? Well, if, if souls of people who rejected Jesus um, are already a part of this judgment, they've already been judged, they're already in the fire, they don't have bodies yet, right? Their bodies are still in the ground. So there's no way they could experience literal fire right now, even though they're under God's judgment. So we know that the fire, it can't be uh, just a literal fire. However, um, it's actually worse than a, a literal fire, because it's being under the judgment of God. And especially this morning, if you have a lot of doubts about the idea of hell, if the whole idea of hell just sounds crazy to you, like, you know, Jesus rose from the dead, I guess I can get behind that, um, Father, Son, and Spirit, okay. This whole thing about hell, it just sounds like we're living in 1600 or something. Um, this is what I would say to you if, if you have doubts about hell. No one uh, has experienced the fire and the judgment of God more than Jesus himself. He experienced the judgment of God in a way that none of us ever will, as an innocent son of God. On the cross, it says that Jesus experienced the fiery judgment of God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what the fire feels like. And he loves the world. And his message of judgment is not one of condemnation. It is a warning to say, please, please turn. Please turn to me. I love you and I want to warn you. Do not live a life dedicated to yourself and only pleasing yourself. It might look very righteous. It might look like going to Sunday school and memorizing all the right Bible verses. But you can do all that only for yourself. And the warning is, Turn to me. Jesus wants to help us to repent. Firstly, that way, a warning, but also an announcement. What's the announcement? And the announcement is, of course, a part of this kingdom of heaven, right? Jesus is going to give us the kingdom of heaven. It's a warning, and it's an announcement. 
And you see the announcement in verse 17. Behold, a voice from heaven, which said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus gets baptized. The heavens are ripped open. And a voice from heaven, uh, God the Father, says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And to really understand this, you have to understand the Old Testament and who they thought the Messiah would be. In Jesus' time, they were expecting a great king to come who would restore Israel, who would liberate Israel from the thumb of Roman rule, who would bring peace and prosperity to their kingdom. And they thought that a son of David would do this. And the son of David would become a son of God because God the Father, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the Old Testament, would love this king so much that this king would be like a son to God. And you see this in Psalm 2. That's what it looks like, where it says, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. And the Jews longed for a king that would be a son to God. And here, Jesus' baptism, he is marked out as the king who's going to come. Not just the king of Israel, but the king of heaven and earth, the king of the nations, the king of Egypt, the king over all the world. And Jesus' baptism is him being marked out as this long-awaited king who'd finally come. But there's more to the announcement. It's not just that. Who is this king? Who's this man who's going to be the greatest king that Israel had ever known? Who's going to be like a son to Yahweh? Was there more to him? And it says, um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a reference to the fact that Jesus who's coming is going to be like heaven and the reign of heaven come down to earth. Jesus of Nazareth, not just an earthly king, but someone from heaven who's come down to earth. Matthew's comment that Jesus' coming is the way of the Lord. That the way of the Lord is the way of Jesus. And that Jesus is coming is as if the Lord himself is coming. John the Baptist promises that Jesus will have the authority to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's not just going to be given the Holy Spirit. Kings had been anointed in the Holy, with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That wasn't new. But this king was going to be one who could not just be anointed, but who could pour out the Holy Spirit onto others. And then finally, John the Baptist says that Jesus, who's coming, I'm not worthy to carry his shoes. Something that he would never say about any earthly king. And all this is adding up to that this this son of God is not just a king that God is treating like a son. But this son of God, who's king, is divine. He's he's, He's very God of very God. Light of light, true God of true God. That's who this Jesus of Nazareth is. And this voice from heaven that's saying, This is my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with you. This is not just a divine attaboy. It's not just God coming along, like patting his servant on the back, saying, You're doing good. Keep up the good work. This is God the Father, who's known his son for eternity past. And the Father and the Son have been in fellowship from eternity past. In the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the lover and the beloved and the bond of love between the two. And heaven is opening up. Heaven, the heavens are being ripped apart. And we are able to see 
Father and Son and Spirit. God, not just one, but three. He's the three in one. What a sight. Why is that good news, though? I mean, what difference does that make for us? And you see it, and this little phrase that it's so easy to pass over, and I passed over it the first time that I read it. But if you looked during the announcement, he says that this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's the last verse. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. In other words, the announcement is not just a private conversation between the father and the son. But God wants everyone there to see this is my beloved son because he's come for you. Way back in the Old Testament, there was a promise of a servant, the servant of the Lord that Isaiah looked forward to see. And this servant would die on a cross. The servant would absorb all the shame and all the guilt that we deserve. He would absorb it onto himself. And this servant would bring in a new heaven and a new earth. And it says this about the servant that was going to come. This is my servant in whom my soul delights. That this son of God known by the Father from eternity past, had now come to be king, to become the servant of the Lord, in order to take away every tear, all sadness, so that we might be forgiven of our sins. You see it in the phrase that Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus wasn't baptized because he was a sinner like all the other Israelites. Jesus is innocent. Why is he being baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. Do you know why that's good news for you? It means that you don't have to fulfill all righteousness. Even though you owe to God the fulfilling of all righteousness, it is not on you to fulfill all righteousness anymore. Because Jesus has come to do it for us. The good news for us is that the announcement of Jesus' baptism is now God's announcement for all those who are in Christ. How does Matthew end, Matthew 28? What's the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world, baptizing them. He could have stopped there. I mean, John was baptizing people. They're confessing their sins. That sounds a lot like Christianity to me. But he says, I want you to baptize them the way that I got baptized, with an announcement of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Not because they fulfilled all righteousness, but because I did. The end of 2 Corinthians 13, this benediction, God pronounces his blessing on the people of God. And he says it this way. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You have the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And God is saying, if you are in Christ, what's true about Jesus is true of you. You're a beloved Son of God. What will, what will help us to repent? Um, in 2020, now some of you are scared. Maybe you're scared that 2020 will be a lot like 2019. It's going to be hard or... Maybe 2019 has been a great year for you, and you're afraid that maybe 2020 is not going to be a great year. That things are going to fall back instead of forward for you. What will help us to turn to God in 2020? It will be, 
if we know that when we turn to God, we turn to Him, and He's waiting on us with an announcement that we are beloved sons of God. What's going to help you read your Bible more in 2020? It's not going to be a better Bible reading plan. I mean, I'm not against those. What will help you read your Bible more in 2020? Is if when you, uh, when you think about reading your Bible, you think, if I open up those pages, it's going to have good news for me. That's why we don't read our Bibles. Because we think if we open them, it's not going to have good news for us. It's the announcement of the kingdom of heaven over us. That in Jesus, you're a beloved son of God. That'll help us to turn to God in 2020. And uh, I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, him, uh, Betsy Morris, who I don't think is here this morning. Betsy Morris gave me this book called Evidence Not Seen. It's about Darlene Rose. She's a missionary in uh, Papua New Guinea in 1939, before, during, and after World War II. And Darlene Rose, she's newly married, early 20s. And um, this is a book that she wrote about her experience. And at this point, they're in the jungle, and her husband has been away for a long time. Her husband's name is Russell. And it says, again, Russell celebrated Christmas <clears throat> excuse me, on the trail. Well, I was hundreds of miles away at Ben Tingi. I'm sure I mispronounced that, with the Mac, Mac, Macassar missionaries. Russell and I had been apart for seven more long months. The Jaffreys and the Dittmers, other missionaries, uh, we went caroling at 4 a.m. in the morning and awakened everyone on the hillside with a loud rendition of joy to the world. Even as we sang, the wonder of God's great love seeped into all the crevices and voids of my inmost being, giving me strength to face the dark, loomy clouds of war and further separation from Russell. Let's pray that the love of the Father would seep down into the crevices and the cracks and the holes uh, in our hearts so that we would be able to turn towards him this year. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look to you for mercy and for grace. We confess that repentance feels impossible, and it is impossible to turn from um, sins that have been with us for a long, long time. And sometimes it feels impossible to remember you, to remember that we're made for another shore. So Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us grace, Lord Jesus. Uh, Show us your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Um, Help us to remember more and more the love, the community of love that you brought us into we might turn towards you in the wilderness and the desert of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.